Well, amen. Hey, you guys take your seats. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, I forgot to mention another way in which you can help with VBS. Because we've had so many children sign up, and we're going to have more sign up, if you're also wondering about other ways in which you can help, is we need more rotational help. So every class will be rotating from Bible story to crafts to rec to music to missions, and we need more help with just having adults and a presence, uh, even some youth just hanging out with each group uh, to kind of help be crowd control, okay? So if that's something that interests you, even if it's just for a couple days this week, please let us know. Sandy will be in the lobby after the service. Um, We'd love to put you to work. So um, Ephesians chapter 2, to end last week's message, I showed you a picture of allied forces arriving on the beaches of Normandy. To start today, I want to take you to the night before that invasion. In his book, Wild at Heart, John Eldridge says that the night before the Allies hit the beaches at Normandy, there were divisions of soldiers, paratroopers, who were dropped in behind enemy lines for one purpose, to cut off Hitler's reinforcements. And these paratroopers, these soldiers, they faced all kinds of dangers, you can only imagine. Alone or in small groups, they moved through the dead of night across a country that they had never been to in order to fight an enemy they could not see and could not predict. It was a moment of unparalleled bravery, no doubt. But in his book, Eldridge reveals that it was also a moment of cowardice for some. For not every soldier played the man that fateful night. Sure, they jumped from the plane, but afterward, some of them went into hiding. One group took cowardice to a new level. Eldridge quotes Stephen Ambrose in his book, who said, too many had hunkered down in hedgerows to wait the dawn, not fulfilling their duties. A few had even gone to sleep Private Francis Pallas of the 506 saw what was perhaps the worst dereliction of duty. He had gathered a squad near Vervaille, and hearing all kinds of noise and singing from a distance in a house, he and his men snuck up on this farmhouse. And in that farmhouse was a mixed group of American soldiers. The paratroop, paratroopers had found liquor in the cellar. And Ambrose says they were drunker than a bunch of hillbillies on a Saturday night wingding. Here they are in the dead of night, the night before the invasion, D-Day, Normandy. Ambrose said, unbelievable. Eldridge would conclude, unbelievable indeed. These men knew they were at war, yet they refused to act like it. I think there is a truth presented to us in Scripture, particularly in books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even as we saw last week, even in Ephesians. A truth that revealed the state of the world in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, in Ephesus, and a truth that still rings true today within the state of our world. That truth is this. We are at war. There is an enemy, and we are in his territory. Within the trenches of this war, there is demonic possession, there is demonic oppression, and there is demonic suppression of the truth. 
And it's unfolding on a micro level within our individual lives and families' lives. But it's also unfolding on a macro level all around us in communities and cultures and around the world. Every day, all day, this enemy we're fighting is not flesh and blood. This enemy is unseen, unpredictable, and unparalleled in producing, articulating, and injecting lies into our reality so as to cause deception, division, destruction, and death on all levels. And here's what's astonishing. Most of us know this. We would acknowledge this. We know we're at spiritual war. Yet so many believers, especially in our culture, are refusing to act like it. So Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Paul writes this. He says, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and in the sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience or the unbelievers. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived, Jew and Gentile, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, those in Christ Jesus. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So Paul is describing, as we saw last week as we entered into this text, he's describing a dreadful and hopeless existence in which you and I once dwelt, all of us, in which those who are outside of Christ now dwell. Every person outside of Jesus lived, resided in death. We were dead. This is who we were. But it's not just that we were dead, it's that we were the cause of our own death. He uses these two words, transgressions or trespasses and sins. Two different words with two different meanings. And the best way I can relate those to you, as we saw last week, is that trespass means failure and sin means rebellion, if you look at the original text. In other words, because of our failure to uphold the law, no matter how many good works we try to do, no matter how many sacrifices we tried to offer, because of our failure to uphold the law, for all of us have fallen short to the glory of God, and because of our rebellion against the law, we were enemies to God, as we see in Colossians 1 and Romans 5. We were separated from God. We were alienated from him. Without him, we were dead. We were failures. We were rebels. 
with no one to blame, really, but ourselves. We got ourselves into this mess. It's really our faults. But this is who we were. Thus, by nature, we were deserving of wrath, deserving of judgment, deserving of death. And going back, Paul expounds or he explains what that failure and that rebellion looks like. We were failures and rebels because and when we followed this counter-trinity that we looked at last week or introduced last week. The unholy trinity, some people have called it. The Satan, the world, and the flesh. So we were failures and we were rebels because and when we followed Satan, the world, the flesh, rather than the Holy Trinity. And last week we looked at the evil one, the prince of the air that Paul talks about here, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We saw that this creature is the most powerful and influential creature in the world. This title, Satan, means adversary or one who opposes. Another title is the devil, which means slanderer or accuser. And this word that Paul uses, prince, simply was a word used in that day for somebody who had jurisdiction over, so authority over a jurisdiction, authority over a certain area or city. He has authority and power over the air, which we'll look more at today. But the Satan is, so to speak, the leader of the failure, the leader of the rebellion. And he wants to spread deception, division, destruction, and death everywhere and in everyone. His end goal, along with the other spiritual beings at work under his sway and who are at work in unbelievers, is to oppose you. To oppose your salvation, to oppose your sanctification, that process of being conformed to the image of Jesus and no longer to the image of this world, which we'll look at today. But the enemy seeks to do all of this ultimately through lies. He's the father of lies. He speaks his native language, as Jesus said. He knows how to deceive. He knows how to manipulate, to plant a lie so deep in your heart and mind that you believe that his lie is truth, that it corresponds to reality. Why? Because he wants you to act on the lie. He wants you to hold tight to the lie, to live the lie. And we saw this with Judas, John chapter 13. That Satan had put into the heart of Judas this idea that Jesus is not the Christ, the Son of God, and actually deserves what's coming for him, meaning the cross. And before Jesus, outside of Jesus, we, all humanity, were his children, the enemy's children. In other words, we belong to the Father of lies. We were, by nature, bound to him. We were enslaved to the evil one. Thus, we were found hopeless and helpless and lifeless. We were found dead in our failure and rebellion, following this prince, this ruler, this Satan. But it wasn't just the prince of the air that we belonged to and were following. We also were following the course or the age of this world. The heir of this world in which the Satan is the ruler over. Now, there are various meanings for this word world. Now, the age simply is just a a term meaning time. 
So in, in other words, the current age of this world, the current time of this world. Now there's a couple meanings though for this word world. It can mean creation as a whole. You'll see that in scripture, talking about all the universe. It can mean the earth specifically. It can mean humanity, like in John 13, or John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And we have this same thing in our language where one word can have multiple meanings. For example, if I said that team was on fire, that baseball team, man, they were just on fire. And then if I go over here and say, man, that house was on fire. Same word, two different meanings. One is referring to a team that's doing really, really good. The other one is referring to a house that is literally burning with flames. It's on fire. Same word, two different meanings. This is the same thing here. All throughout Scripture, you can see this word world used, but it has different meanings. And in this context, Paul is not saying that the world itself, that the physical world, that matter, is evil. And we'll look at the flesh as well next, next time. But in this sense, Paul means world, as one commentator said, as a malevolent system, an evil system, this air, this course, one which is hostile to God, a system which is lost in sin, wholly at odds with anything divine and is ruined and depraved. A system in which all humanity outside of Christ is just living and dwelling and functioning and living. The Satan and his fellow rebels, they control and govern and empower this current age or this current system. And he seeks to coerce and manipulate the otherwise good institutions within the world. Marriage, family, education, government, entertainment, art, business. In order to create a system in which the masses buy into and live according to his rebellious system through these otherwise good institutions. Now the question is, is how does he do it? How does he do it and how does he keep so many people trapped in it? Now we saw how he can do this on a micro level, right? We saw this with Judas. How he implants ideas, these lies into people so deep that they act on it. But how does he do it on a macro level? How does he plant lies so deep within institutions like marriage and family and education and government and so on? How does he do this so as to get the masses to believe and live the lies? How does he do it? Well, I believe his scheme entails four stages, and they're this. Infiltrate, incarcerate, indoctrinate, and incinerate. His scheme... To create this age or this system of the world, which is in rebellion to God, in order to create this system, to empower it, to govern it, and to keep people trapped in it, he entails and uses these four stages. Infiltrate, incarcerate, indoctrinate, and incinerate. Meaning, infiltrate the institutions of a society, of a culture, of a community. Institute or get into these institutions, get an established grip on education, on government, on family, on community, even the church, and then begin to manipulate those institutions through lies. 
using that infiltration to incarcerate people. Physically, perhaps in some cases, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually incarcerate them. And then use that incarceration to indoctrinate them. Tear them down. Deconstruct their identities. Tear down the institutions. Deconstruct the institutions in order to introduce confusion and chaos in the mind and heart and in the masses. And then from that rubble, build an army of rebels who will bow down to a statue that stands at odds with God. And should there be any nonconformist to the age of this culture or this world, should there be anyone who swims against the current, should there be anyone who stands in his way, meaning they take the name of Jesus over Caesar, incinerate them. Kill them. Get rid of them. Fire them. Push them out of the otherwise good institution. And so on. And I want to show you how this works through three examples. One's biblical, one's historical, and one is presently happening right now. Most of us know about King Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a story we've heard many times, some of us, even at perhaps a VBS. And what we know is that the statue was presented in Daniel chapter 3, and King Nebuchadnezzar forced people to bow down to this statue. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down. There they are standing in a, in a sea of people bowing down. And what's happened as a result? They are thrown into the fire for not complying. King Nebuchadnezzar sought to incinerate them for not conforming. And of course, they're delivered. God's with them, and it's an incredible story. But most of us, we don't know or we don't bother to think about how this situation really began. How did we arrive at a moment of a statue and King Nebuchadnezzar incinerating anyone who refused to bow down at the statue? Well, you've got to go back to Daniel chapter 1. And what we read is that King Nebuchadnezzar infiltrated Jerusalem. They infiltrated the culture, the community, the nation. And what? They took over. They took over the educational system. They took over the family. They took over the political system. They took over the nation. And then the Israelites were then physically incarcerated. And after that incarceration, the king began to indoctrinate some of those who were incarcerated. How? He began by stripping them of their names. He sought to deconstruct their identities and give them new identities. Like in Daniel 1-7, where we read that the chief official for King Nebuchadnezzar gave them new names. In other words, Babylonian names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Thus, now we know them as their Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names. Deconstruct their identities. Change it. Why? Because if you want to indoctrinate people, if you want to conform them to your image, to your culture, to your ideology, especially younger generations, you must re-identify them. You must deconstruct them. You must give them new identities so that they might become disenchanted with their past and who they really are. And so that they might buy into the new course or to the new age of the culture. 
which is really a tale as old as time, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Afterward, the king then trained them for three years. Trained them in Babylonian literature, Babylonian culture, Babylonian ideology, Babylonian religion. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar said, take these boys, deconstruct them, their beliefs, their past, their worldviews, their very identities, and conform them to the image of Babylon. And if they don't comply, then what? What do you do with those who march to a different drum than the age of this world? What does the evil one do with those who are nonconformist to his lies? He incinerates them, quite literally in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's case, though they were delivered. So you and I must notice that the statue didn't come first. The enemy is clever. He knows how to work subtly and work the progression of his scheme, creating a seductive and powerful system. What I mean is the enemy knows when to construct that statue and when to pull the trigger on making it mandatory for you and I to conform your life to his statue, to hand over our allegiance and devotion to it or else. The enemy makes it mandatory about the time when the majority of the people in the culture believe that socially, culturally, and spiritually, it's in their best interest to do so. When the majority of the culture is under full devotion to the age or to the course of this world. That's why you have this picture. Many Israelites, unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bending those knees to this statue, giving allegiance to it over Yahweh. In order to bring about failure and rebellion on a macro level, the evil one will infiltrate institutions. And he will incarcerate those within the institutions. And then he will use indoctrination to tear down the old and build up the new, creating a system in which people are conforming to a new image that stands in rebellion to God, one which they are like God, deciding for themselves right and wrong, good and bad, a system in which there is much demonic possession, oppression, and suppression of the truth. And anyone found standing in opposition to this new image, incinerate them. Get rid of them. This is his scheme. Using these four stages, it happens over and over and over again throughout history, even in the last hundred years. Let's go to 1920s Germany, post World War I. The Allies obviously defeated the Central Powers, and Germany, as a result, was a mess. Financially and politically, they were a mess. And out of this rubble of mess came these youth groups that were popping up all around Germany. And they were focused on religion and politics and all of this kind of stuff. They almost became like little cults in and of themselves. But during this time, in the 20s, Hitler starts a youth group. And his purpose was to infiltrate the next generations and then incarcerate them mentally and emotionally and spiritually and politically and begin to indoctrinate them through deconstruction and building up a new generation that conforms to Nazi ideology and behavior to the Nazi statue. Just listen to some of this research. The Hitler Youth was for boys aged between 10 and 18. By 1932, this is a year out before he took power, it had just over 100,000 members. 
By the year after he took power, this number would rise to over three and a half million. The members of the Hitler Youth were viewed as ensuring the future of Nazi Germany, and they were indoctrinated in Nazi ideology. The aim was to instill the motivation that would enable its members to fight faithfully for Nazi Germany as soldiers. Sacrifice for the cause was instilled into their training. One former Hitler youth claimed that the notion Germany must live, even if they had to die, was hammered into them. Education and training programs for the Hitler youth were designed to undermine the values of the traditional elitist structures of German society along with their privileges. As historian Richard Evans observes, the songs they sang were Nazi songs. The books they read were Nazi books. Ten, twelve-year-olds. With militant appeals to nationalism and freedom and self-sacrifice, the Nazi party successfully recruited students disenchanted with German democracy and their current student organizations. By the mid-1930s, all those youth groups and organizations that were popping up post-World War I melded into one organization under the rule of Hitler. And in 1936, membership of these groups became required. Besides through these groups, though, the Nazis aimed to indoctrinate the younger population through reforming the education system. They aimed to de-intellectualize education. They did not want education to provoke people to ask questions or to think for themselves. They believed that this approach would instill obedience and belief in the Nazi worldview, creating the ideal future generation. The Nazis also placed great emphasis on who the teachers were. Just three months after Hitler became chancellor, all Jewish teachers and teachers with undesirable political beliefs were dismissed. This act made, also made membership of the Nazi party required for all teachers. In other words, the regime told them what to teach, how to teach it, and where to teach it. So that these German boys and girls would become the future of the Nazi regime. But to summarize all of that, this was the goal of these youth groups' organizations, the vision behind it. Here's a quote from Adolf Hitler, 1938. These boys and girls, they enter our organizations at 10 years of age. And often for the first time, they get a little fresh air. After four years of the young folk, they go on to the Hitler Youth, where we have them for another four years. And even if they are still not complete national socialists, they go to labor service and are smoothed out for another six, seven months. And whatever class consciousness or social status might still be left, the German armed forces will take care of that. It's amazing that the bulk of the mass exterminations of World War II took place well at the end of the war. The question is, that I've often wondered, how do some of these soldiers get to the point where they are incinerating the masses? How could they do these things and then endorse these things? How could such an evil system become embraced and endorsed by the masses? Well, because these mid-20-year-olds, some of them have been taught, trained, and showed for years that giving themselves to the Nazi statue was in their best interest. Socially, culturally, spiritually. 
and that the Nazi statue demanded everything no matter what. Not only them, though, but parents and grandparents and many other people in the culture became so enchanted by Nazism, for it offered social and cultural status. It offered the promise of being part of something bigger than yourself. It offered acceptance and inclusivity, for some at least, and was a symbol for progression and enlightenment and the answer to their longings. It was the great Nazi statue worth bowing down to, very similar to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. But there were some who refused to bow down. Those like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was an up-and-coming academic and theologian in his 30s. He was a lecturer at the University of Berlin when Hitler rose to power. And everything changed on that day when Hitler rose to power on January 30th, 1933. And two days after Hitler was installed as chancellor, Bonhoeffer got on the radio and addressed as many viewers or hearers would listen to him, and he attacked Hitler. And he warned Germany against slipping into an, an idolatrous cult of this leader, who could very well, very well turn out to be the great misleader or the great seducer. Bonhoeffer's broadcast was cut off before he could finish. And 12 years later, only days before the war would come to an end, the Nazis killed Bonhoeffer at 39 years old for refusing to bow down to the Nazi statue, instead choosing Jesus over it. And his last words were, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. But this is the enemy's scheme infiltrate, incarcerate, indoctrinate, and then incinerate. He does it over and over and over again, and he especially loves to go after younger generations. He holds no punches. Remember the father who could not get the disciples to cast out that demon, and everybody's frustrated, and there's a lot of commotion. Remember, that was a boy that the evil one was trying to destroy. Now let's look at today. The enemy has a new kind of tool. This tool is more alluring and deceptive and justifiable than anything he's ever used before. It's a kind of tool that he can use to infiltrate and incarcerate and indoctrinate without us even leaving the comfort of our own home or car, and without us even hardly knowing at all what he is up to. The digital device, the technological device, the internet that comes with the smartphone, the tablets, the video games, and so on. Now, hear me on this. I'm not anti these things. There's a lot of great things that comes with it, like connecting with missionaries from around the world, like reading from the Bible and studying from around the world. But here's the thing. You and I had better be on guard because I want to show you how this works, how he uses this device to infiltrate and then incarcerate and indoctrinate. Let's look at it from a digital marketing standpoint and from the viewpoint of how powerful this stuff is, especially on the next generations. Marketers have spent billions of dollars every year to learn what makes children tick. They pay researchers, psychologists, and they use research that analyzes children's behavior, fantasy lives, artwork, even their dreams, so that companies are able to craft sophisticated marketing strategies to reach young people. For example, in the late 1990s, when I was about 10 years old, 
The advertising firm Saatchi and Saatchi hired cultural anthropologists to study children engaging with digital technology at home, long before the smartphone, mind you, in order to figure out how best to engage them with brands and products. Why? Because kids represent an important demographic to marketers because in addition to their own purchasing power, which is considerable, they influence their parents' buying decisions and they are the adult consumers of the future. In other words, I had somebody studying me at 10 years old to learn me, my habits, so as to grab hold of me so that when I became an adult, I would continue to consume the brand. Savvy savvy marketers, they know that brand loyalty and consumer habits form when children are young. They know that it's easier to shape future buyers than it is to convert customers who buy from competitors. Thus, marketers are wise to foster a relationship with consumers from a young age, said one. And this narrowing in on children began decades ago, not just in the last few years. According to Naomi Klein, who tracked the birth of brand marketing in her 2000 book, No Logo, the mid-1980s saw the birth of a new kind of corporation. Nike, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, to name a few. These corporations, she said, changed their primary corporate focus from producing products to creating an image for their brand name. So they moved their manufacturing operations to countries with cheap labor. They freed up money to create powerful marketing messages. It has been tremendously profitable. And it has led to the creation of some of the most wealthy and powerful multinational corporations the world has ever seen. So what happens with this is that marketers plant the seeds of brand recognition in very young children. In the hopes that those seeds will grow into lifetime relationships. According to the Center for a New American Dream, babies as young as six months of age can form mental images of corporate logos and mascots. Brand loyalties can be established as early as age two. Go ask Disney. And by the time children head off to school, most can recognize hundreds of brand logos. And companies get amazingly rich off this. This is why companies like Google and Microsoft and Nike are itching just to get their brands into our schools to commercialize an education. And then comes the internet. The internet is an extremely desirable medium for marketers wanting to target children. Why? It's part of youth culture. Most of us as parents, we don't quite understand the extent to which our kids are being marketed to online. Kids are often online alone without parental supervision. And unlike broadcast media, which have codes regarding advertising to kids, the internet is unregulated. Sophisticated technologies make it easy to collect information from young people for marketing research and to target individual children with personalized advertising. By creating engaging, interactive environments based on products and brand names, companies can build brand loyalties from an early age via the internet. But here's the thing. Our enemy's goal is not for our kids to buy shoes or toys. Though consumerism can be just as powerful of a tool in drawing us away from the Lord. He wants generations to believe that the new kind of statue he's constructing 
that it is in their best interest, socially, culturally, and spiritually, to surrender everything to that statue. In addition to his other methods and means, he's using the digital device to infiltrate institutions, to get into the marriage, to get into families, to get into the house, to get into politics and business, and then to incarcerate people with addictions, mentally, emotionally, physically incarcerate them, trap them, and then begin the indoctrination process. And he knows when to pull the trigger on making it mandatory to bow down. He'll pull that trigger at the moment he believes he can get most of the culture to buy in. When most people in the culture believe it's in their best interest to do so. When most of the culture is marching to the beat of the course or the age of this world. And those who do not, he will incinerate. Get them fired from their jobs. Push out of those institutions. Perhaps even literally. And we're having a tough time keeping up with this strategy. Because in a way, he's reversed the order in these last days. Just in the last 15 years. The smartphone came out, the iPhone at least, about 15 years ago. There was a father who, in the last couple of years, wrote a letter to his school. A very prominent school. He's a very prominent figure. And in that letter, he was attacking the school for telling his daughter what to think and not how to think. But here's the thing. His letter did, and it will forever ring hollow to the next generations. Why? Because in these latter days, the enemy doesn't need the schools for his statue. Now that helps. But the enemy is using the possibilities that come with tech devices. Things like influencers, images, videos, artificial intelligence, deep fake videos. To the point that for the masses... He's already infiltrated and grabbed hold of the next generations, incarcerating many of them mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and even indoctrinating so many of them long before they head off to pre-K and step foot in a classroom. To the point that if a teacher is standing there in the class teaching things that you and I would cringe about and say, that's wrong, the younger generations perhaps are saying, What took you so long to arrive at this point? We've been believing this our entire lives. In other words, the enemy's been preparing the current age for his multicolored, brilliant statue for years. And he's doing this because he hates God, and he is the ruler of this age, this system that is opposed to God. And our battle is not against flesh and blood, Paul says later in Ephesians. It's against him and his fellow rebels who were the same ones behind Nebuchadnezzar, the same ones behind Hitler, the same ones who are behind the unfolding lies today. You and I are at war. Though many of us are not acting like it, and though many of us have misidentified the true enemy who's lurking in the unseen shadows, the one who is like a lion just prowling around looking for someone to devour, some people, some institutions, some cultures to devour. And his scheme is to infiltrate, to get into the institutions of marriage and family and education and politics and business, and then to incarcerate people, and then to indoctrinate people, and then to incinerate anybody who stands in his way. And you and I, Paul is saying, were once under that delusion. 
we once were trapped in his scheme, trapped in his system, caught in the web, walking to the beat of Satan's drum, following him and following the system of this world. But no more. But God. You and I no longer belong to the kingdom of this world, but to his kingdom. We have been set free. We have the spirit of truth in us. We've been made alive in Christ and with Christ. We are now the fish swimming against the current. We now are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who's standing among a sea of those bowing down to the enemy's statue. As a result, as Paul would say in Romans and a later say in Ephesians, so do not, because you're in Christ, because you belong to him, don't conform anymore to the pattern of this world. And he uses the same word here in Romans 12 as he does here in Ephesians chapter 2. The age or the system of this world. Don't be conformed to it. Be on guard of it. And be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. You and I must be on guard at the infiltration, the incarceration, and the indoctrination of the enemy by being transformed by the renewal of our minds. You and I once belonged to that system, but no more. Thus, we are to act differently. We are to speak differently. We are to be on guard of what we watch and what we feed ourselves, what we ingest. In other words, you and I have a choice in this war to become conformist to the world like we once were, or to continue to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And if we're not careful, if we don't recognize that we're at war, if we don't start acting like we're at war, then what will happen is the Satan who opposes salvation and opposes sanctification will try to lead us to become conformist again to his system. He'll try to lead us to become enchanted by this reimagined statue and what it offers. So believing that it's in our best interest socially, culturally, and spiritually to give ourselves over to it, to be conformed to it. So that we will return to that old system that left us dead and wanting and helpless and hopeless, rendering us ineffective, a salt that lost its saltiness. So we must be on guard. We must stand firm. We must get ready. We must recognize there's a war out there, and this is how the enemy works. He infiltrates, he incarcerates, he indoctrinates, and he will incinerate. But, as Diedrich Bonhoeffer said in his famous writing, The Cost of Discipleship, we must know that the messengers of Jesus will be hated to the very end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. But the end is also near. And they must hold on and persevere until it comes. For he only 
for only he will be blessed, who remains loyal to Jesus and his word until the end. And at that moment, we may say, for me, this is the end, but really the beginning of eternal life. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite John and them forward. And some of us have to step back and really allow the Lord to evaluate our lives. Our time, our money, our resources. We have to ask ourselves, am I being conformed to the image of Jesus? Or am I allowing the enemy to reconform me to the image of the system of this world? Whether intentionally or unintentionally, some of us can become accidental conformists. Buying into the lies, worshiping the idols of our community and our culture, buying into that great deception. So for some of us right now in this room, we just have to remind ourselves of who we were outside of Christ. We were dead in the trespasses of sins and our failure to live up to and our rebellion against the Lord. And we were following the Satan. We were following the course of this world. But God set you free. By grace, you have been saved from that system. You've been saved from this world, this age that is under the wrath of God, that has been condemned and is waiting judgment. You've been set free from that. So live as children of the light, no longer as children of the dark or the father of lies. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You've been set free. Live in Christ and for Christ. Father, we come to you right now. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would step back and recognize that we're at war. There's a spiritual war all around us. It's true since the beginning of time. We see it in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Demonic possession, oppression, suppression of the truth. We see that the enemy holds no punches. He goes after anybody and everybody, even children. He will go after the most vulnerable of Lord, he is wicked and evil, leader of the failure and the rebellion, the ruler of this air, this system of lies and deception and division and destruction and death. Lord, help us to be aware of his schemes, of the stages of infiltration of how he gets into our marriages or into our families or into our relationships, even into our churches, how he tries to infiltrate otherwise good institutions, family, education, government, and how he seeks to incarcerate people. Lord, we look at our culture today and we see so much mental illness. Lord, some of that is physically produced as a result of a fallen sinful world, but a lot of that is produced by demonic presence. 
He seeks to indoctrinate people once he has them incarcerated. Deconstructing them, tearing them down, changing their identities. To be conformed no longer to Yahweh, to you, but to be conformed to whatever the Babylonian statue is in our day. Lord, may we be on guard of this. May we we be aware of it. May we get ready to fight the good fight. May we get dressed and ready for battle as Paul would lay out very clearly in Ephesians 6. May we stand in your strength and in your power and in your wisdom and in your words. May we stand in your work and on your work. May we pray for each other. May we pray for ourselves. May we pray for all the believers around the world. And Lord, should it come to a moment in our day in which we are like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not willing to conform to the image, not willing to give our lives to Caesar, but only to Jesus, should the result of that be incineration, literally, help us still to stand, knowing that you will be with us in the fire, and knowing even should we die for us to live as Christ. And our death will be gained, for we will enter into eternal life. So Lord, today help us be aware, to be on guard and to get ready. And help us not to return back to the pattern of this world. For you have set us free in Christ. Help us now to be different. I'm going to ask that you guys stand with us. We're going to have time of response. Maybe some of you want to come down here and pray. We have these VBS bracelets down here, these wristbands that you can grab and just begin to pray for this week. You can come down and get those during this time. There's still the Panama trip um, bands down here as well. If you want to come down here and pray, you want to talk to us about baptism, salvation, just join in the church or just you need prayer specifically, man, come talk to us. We're going to be down here during this time of response.